Exodus 24. This is God's Word written for you today. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. He did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua. Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. Behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. And Moses went up on the mountain. The cloud covered the mountain The glory of the Lord dwelt on Sinai. The cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance, the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain 40 days, 40 nights. Let's ask God's blessing. Lord, we do pray that you would use the reading and the preaching of the Scriptures Give us understanding and insight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
I want you to remember. Might take you a second, some of you, I guess. This might be a couple of years ago. I want you to remember, think about the teacher who influenced you the most. Not your favorite, not the nicest, not the meanest, not the one that you enjoyed the most, the teacher that left the, the largest impact, the longest lasting impact on you. Got it? I suspect that if we were going to stand around and talk and kind of compare who those people are, I suspect that we could pick a couple of themes. Again, I, I suspect most of them were not the nicest. I know certainly for me, they were not always the nicest. They weren't the meanest either. I had some of those in my past. I suspect, though, the ones that we would all kind of agree on as those that left the biggest impact on us were the ones that taught us kind of two things. One, as any good teacher does, they they teach you the material at hand. But they don't just teach you the material at hand, but they teach you in such a way that the next steps make sense. So that when you get out of their classroom, get out of their interaction, get out of their experience and into the next thing, suddenly you're like, oh, that's what they were doing. It all makes sense. I know for me, the teacher I had in elementary school that taught me how to add, I remember the way that she taught us how to add so that when we got into multiplication, it was so easy. I remember, it was one of my earliest memories in school of thinking, man, that's a clever teacher because this is so easy. It makes so much sense. And then I changed teachers and got into division and I remember her almost swearing at us and leaving, calling us stupid and having to walk out. Go take a smoke break for half an hour. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Let the assistant teacher teach us everything in that brief time while she was gone. So much of those teachers, those really gifted ones, the the brilliant teachers are the ones that equip you not just for the present, but also for the future. The ones that shape how you think and how you feel and how you act now, but also provide you the framework for later. Exodus 24, at least the way we're going to look at it today, showcases how brilliant of a teacher God is. That even as he's instructing Israel, he's also instructing us. He's preparing the way for how life is going to be different 1,500 years after this and how it will be different for all time. There are a number of things here that display the beauty and the brilliance of God. How great he is as a teacher. The first that we're going to consider is he's instructing Israel and then also instructing us that all humans always interact with God through a mediator. All humans, you, me, everybody, all humans always, inter- well, his children at least, interact with him through a mediator. Now, this is going to be significant because, again, we tend to think of God so often uh, with only kind of the simple and the safe and the easy and the positive aspects to his character. We tend to only kind of remember God as that loving grandpa that we wish we had who's just really, really smart or really powerful. 
But if we're going to be reminded of the text here, that's not the context in which this is delivered. I mean, remember, the Lord has brought them out of Egypt. And how has he brought them out of Egypt? With total destruction and annihilation everywhere else. I mean, think about just any one of those plagues would have been so unbelievably traumatic, much less all of them, much less being chased out into the desert with the the greatest superpower in the world chasing you and then having the sea eat them. And then having your God lead you with this gigantic, I suspect probably humongous tornado of pillar, you know, this pillar of smoke or fire, depending on day or night, leading you out into a mountain. And then when you get to the mountain, he resides on the mountain and it looks like terror has descended on the mountain. I mean, remember the way that the, the Psalms describe this entire event is that so far everything in Exodus 1 through 23 is so scary. Even creation itself is like, nope, 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 don't want a part of this. The sea flees from the presence of God. The mountains tremble to try to get away from this God because he is so utterly powerful. If you noticed at the end, verse 15 and following there, how it describes who, you know, God's presence on the mountain. Moses went on the mountain, cloud covered the mountain. And we go, oh, okay, neat. And there's clouds and stuff. I've seen clouds. They're cool. I doubt you've seen clouds like this. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, 17. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. Have you ever gone on uh, Google Earth? I strongly encourage you to do this. And go look at the geography of this part of the world. Go look at Mount Jubal, which is what they think is Mount Sinai. They have no idea, but that's their best guess. Go look at the geography of this place, and it's amazing because it's like red rocks. There's nothing there to burn. It's just rocks everywhere, which means you can see really well. It's austere and it looks dead and it's dry and it's amazing and then to think about on the top of this mountain the glory of the Lord descending like a devouring fire it's not just a raging fire that's a a fire that's consuming all of the things there it is a place of terror And then chapter 24, with this kind of backdrop of this terrible mountain in the background, we get this interesting interchange in the middle, which your ESV has titled, The Covenant Confirmed. It's where God's covenant relationship with his people is formalized from both sides, kind of reformalized again from both sides, but where the people sign off on what they actually know they're getting in on, where God has established his covenant with them. And you get this amazing kind of sort of interchange kind of right there taking place and you get the geography of like kind of almost in the valley right in front of the mountain with the backdrop of just being this amazing burning mountain. I mean, think about it. You can't really do much at night with a large group of people unless the mountain behind you is on fire. Then everybody can see anything that you would need. You could labor long into the night because you can read newspapers outside because it's so bright. 
And from the very beginning, God is instructing Israel. He's setting them up as a very wise teacher so that later they have the right categories because their entire interaction with God is not direct. It's the hard part for how we think about the Old Testament. How does it start? The Lord says to Moses, this is the conversation that's been taking, all, taking place all along. God is talking with his mediator, Moses. And Moses represents in the story, he functionally ends up representing both parties. He speaks for God to the people and he speaks for the people to God. He's their representative. And further kind of highlighting this this feature, the Lord says, all right, now, Moses, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons who are going to get consumed by this fire, not too far from here. Uh, And 70 of the elders of of Israel, uh, the representatives of the people, the the leaders of Israel, what you would consider to be your kind of leaders. I mean, think Congress. This is effectively, if we're going to use America as an analog, which is not the right analog, but if you're going to, it would be like calling the president, the vice president, uh, you know, a couple of the chiefs of staff and all of the Senate to say, all right, it's time to go. That's who these people represent. Which, again, is kind of amusing for us as South Carolinians, many of us, because we're like, those people don't speak for me. I don't really care what they say. <laughs> Depending on your political bent, it might be the House of Representatives or the Senate. I don't care what they say. They're not the boss of me. Instead, God calls these up and begins this conversation and saying, look, this is what the nature of relationship with the Lord is. That's where the conversation takes place about what we've already read in terms of the rules of the covenant, what God requires of Israel. This interchange is incredible because it, it ends up functionally taking place in tears. Where you have the, not tears like crying tears, but like stages tears. You have all of the people in their houses, they're down in the valley. You come up a little ways and you have the elders of Israel with Nadab and Abihu. And then you have Moses residing with God. It's taking place kind of in stages. Again, visibly capturing for the people. Their relationship with God is never direct. It's always mediated. There's always a go-between. There's always someone between them and God. This is extremely important because it frames how all of Israel will interact. All of her history will be shaped by this concept that there's going to be a mediator. It's never direct. The people never know God directly. Someone stands between them. Here it's Moses. It will become Joshua. Eventually it will become you get, you know, the kings. It's why it's such a big deal that they have bad kings. Because the king or the prophet is a mediator between God and man. Even when you get to the major prophets and the minor prophets, how the people refuse to listen to the prophet, it's not just that they're not listening to the preacher. They should, but it's not just that. It's that they're not listening to the go-between between God and man. They don't have access directly 
Well, why does this matter? Because God is a marvelous teacher, and what he's doing is for Israel, he's framing out a category of, I know God through someone else. Because in the New Testament, that someone else will show up. And he will say things like, if you want to know the Father, you must know me. He'll say things like, if you wish to see the Father, you can see me. He'll say things like, if you want to abide in the Father, abide in me, for I abide in him. It ends up framing out the entirety of the ministry of the Lord Jesus, that he is the go-between between God and man. Now, why is that important? I mean, who cares that I have that framework? Well, the problem is, is that sometimes the church has historically maybe gotten a little bit too big for her britches and has forgotten that from the very beginning, God has framed out that sinners need a mediator. Sinners are never brought directly into his presence. They always come via a mediator. Now, in the Old Testament, it was through uh, simply only human uh, mediators, and they were insufficient, which is why it never solved the problem. In the New Testament, we get the great mediator, the God-man, the Lord Jesus, and it reconciles everything. Unfortunately, though, parts of the American church, we've, again, kind of maybe gotten a little bit too big for our britches, and we're trying to go backwards and trying to forget that category of a mediator. Forget the idea that the only way I come into God's presence is in Christ. Forget that the only way that I may know the Father is in Christ. I know there's temptations when we pray sometimes to maybe get a little bit rote with our prayers. I know some of us, we have... Uh, Thank you for this day is actually the last name of God when we pray. It's dear God, thank you for this day because that's one word. It just kind of runs on. And for some of us, the way we end our prayers is in Jesus' name, amen. And that's all one word that we never really think about, which is tragic. Why is it that we pray in Jesus' name? It's because you can't pray directly without it. You don't go into his presence apart from him. It's kind of like one of the big points of the book of Hebrews. How do we pray with boldness? We pray with boldness in Christ. How do I have God's promises? I have them in Christ. He is, those promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus. How do I have newness of life? I have it in Christ. How do I have sanctification? I have it in Christ. How do I have hope for tomorrow? I have it in Christ. I have a mediated look at God in Christ. And friends, I'm going to give a little bit of a warning. There is the temptation for a church that is, and I'm not talking this one, I'm talking about kind of world church, a church that gets too big for her britches, that gets too high of opinion of herself, to think of Jesus as the way in which we get converted and then to never think about him again. And I'll ask it maybe a little bit differently. For your daily spiritual walk, how much does Jesus matter?
How much does he, he matter to your daily walk? Or are you only thinking about reading the scriptures and what God says to me and I say to God? That's that unmediated thing again, isn't it? Where we're not trying to think about our worship as Trinitarian. Our relationship is Trinitarian. That's why we read the Ephesians 2 passage. That's why we used our uh, two catechism questions, because they help rightly orient us that we have a Trinitarian relationship in which we can never cut Christ out of the center. He was our mediator. He is our mediator. And he will always be our mediator. He was setting Israel up to think this way. He's setting us up to think this way so that when we think about entering into the presence of God, it's still not something we do directly. We do it in Christ. So that when we get into the life to come, say we all are taken to glory right now, that would be a really good way to go. When we get there, we go in Christ. When we step into the life to come, we go in Christ, unified with Him, resting in Him, trusting in Him, defined by Him. Again, there is a great temptation that we want to cut Him out of the picture. We have such high opinions of ourselves that we so often try to go direct mediation. What does God say to me? What do I say to God? A direct relationship apart from Christ. And this is one of my great struggles in the Christian publishing industry. How many books, the foundational presupposition, is they're taking Origen, who the church condemned 1,500 years ago for this very thing, and just recapturing and saying this direct relationship apart from the truth of God in Christ Jesus. That's what Hebrews 1 says. Well, Lord doesn't stop there. He sets them up to teach the people of Israel that uh, there is only one way to know the Father, and that is through a mediated relationship. He's training them for when Christ arrives. But then secondly, he's training them with a category to think of. Sinners never go into the presence of God without having sin taken care of. It's why mediation is so important. You don't just waltz into his presence. It's not you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay together. Sin always has to be taken care of. And as God institutes this covenant with his people, the law is read, God's word is read to them, and they twice sign off on everything that God says we're going to do. But it's intriguing how so much of a part of what's happening in the background that the ritual of what's taking place is to train them to think correctly. Verse 4, Moses is writing down all the words of the Lord. He rises early in the morning, and what does he do? What, what is the thing that starts, the center point of the entire relationship is? It is an altar with pillars representing the people around it. And he sends the young men. They don't have the priesthood yet. They're not established. He sends the young men to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. I suspect that was not a small quantity. I suspect that we're talking about literally a bloodbath, because that's what happens in the next couple of verses. 
They take half of the uh, blood and they put it into basins, very large bowls to store for a moment. They take half, they put it on the altar. And as the covenant is ratified and cut, the Lord baptizes the people with blood through Moses, the mediator. Moses representing God to the people. He sprinkles them with the blood of these sacrifices from the altar, which again, we now think of as being a bit gross. Um, things that I don't want to have happen to me when I go to worship, being sprayed with someone else's blood. Um, but that's what it looks like at this point, oxen blood being spread on all of them. So that, verse 8, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. It's a bond in blood, sovereignly administered, helping categorize for them that idea that sin matters. Sin matters. Now, that's going to be really important for them because uh, verse 20, I mean, chapter 25, chapter 25, we're going to start getting into the nitty gritties of the law and the various things that they do and the various happenings. But if you were to actually go in the action to the next section of action, you would skip to chapter 32, which is what? It's the golden calf. It makes sense because what's the penalty for the golden calf? And what's the penalty for sin that shows up shortly after this? You start seeing a a long-running pattern when the people reject the Lord. After this chapter, he starts killing them for it. They have terrible things happen. At one point, they have burning serpents go through. Hmm, Things I don't like combined, snakes and fire, to the point where they bite. I'll pass on that, thank you. The ground opening up and eating them. The leaders of Israel taking spears and going through and running the sinners through. That's a type of church discipline I'm thankful that we don't have the, you know, obligation to practice. I mean, I cannot imagine what that would be like to be your holy duty as the leader of a people to take a spear and start running some of them through. It would be awful. But it's training them. It's fixing in the front of their mind. Sin matters. I mean, you may take it lightly. I may take it lightly, but God does not. It also, it it almost, in some ways, it almost makes the golden calf comedic in the most tragic way. Mountain, burning, devouring fire. They've just met with God. Hey, let's go worship however we want. No. Sin matters. God's in charge. It's intriguing. It's, this covenant is cut. It's ratified through sacrifices, through blood being sprinkled because sin matters. Which again is one of those concepts that intellectually we all agree to. We're all like, well, yeah, pastor, preach it. I understand that. Until it gets turned on ourselves, Right? We're like, sin matters when it's somebody else. I know I feel that way, right? Sin matters when it's your sin. Not as much when it's my sin. Because that's how sneaky our sin is, isn't it? We just don't like to deal with ourselves. We don't like to acknowledge who we are, how we are. We don't like to put labels 
on ourselves. I think it's C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes from him. He's talking about how we uh, hate the sin but love the sinner. And people, he's like, people will never understand what that means. All you have to think about is how you treat yourself. You lie constantly, but yet you never call yourself a liar. You may be hateful constantly, but you never would think of yourself as a hateful person. You never define yourself by those attributes, yet you may do them all the time. Yet our neighbor may do that once, and we're like, oh, they're a liar because they lied that one time 25 years ago. You lied 25 times in the last week, yet you're not a liar. It's amazing. How lightly we think of sin. And it's intriguing. It's, those two things are really connected, aren't they? Where when we think lightly of sin, that mediator suddenly doesn't matter. Because I can waltz into God's presence because I am wonderful. And being that he's omniscient, he knows how wonderful I am. You might not know how wonderful I am, but certainly God does because he knows everything. I'm being obviously ridiculous with that, but it is amazing how sneaky our flesh is to trick us into thinking this way that I'm just so marvelous. I mean, Jesus may have mattered when he saved me, but he doesn't matter today. I don't need him today. I don't need to abide in him, me, him and me. Otherwise, that branch is cut off and thrown into the fire. He certainly didn't know what he was talking about in the book of John. And I love how in this chapter it frames out kind of those two categories, the idea of that mediator and the idea that sin matters. And when they're handled correctly, it produces something very significant. And in fact, actually, when we see it, some of us hopefully will understand the reason why we don't have the third thing is because we messed up the first two. Mediator, sin matters. And when it's done correctly, what happens? Verse 8, Moses took the blood, threw it on the people. Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Verse 9, 10, and 11, something I'd forgotten about. I've read this chapter who knows how many times. Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, the 70 of the elders of Israel, went up, and they saw the God of Israel. That is a big deal. If they had just ended the sentence there, if Moses had stopped writing there, that would have been, like, shocking. But it continues, and it gets more amazing. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, lapis lazuli, but like the very heaven for clearness, that's the same language that's going to get picked up by Ezekiel that we talked about in our Bible study. This is the language of marvel, the language of glory, the language of, uh, oh crud, my, my words aren't strong enough to capture the beauty that I'm trying to describe. It's the same way that if you asked a parent to articulate the feelings they had the first time they held their child as a baby, they would say it was great and you would laugh because it was great, but that's nowhere near how great it was. That's what this is. And then, verse 11, this is shocking. God didn't kill them. He could have. He's already warned them that anything that steps on the mountain will die. God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. And they beheld God and ate and drank. I would love to know what that meal was like. 
How close are they to the, the point where the fire is burning? They're not in it. Moses goes up into it later. They're not in it, but how close? Is it a close enough where like, they're, they're trying to see who sits on this side of the table because they don't want to sit on that side of the table? Is it close enough that the guys on that side of the table are kind of half watching because they're like, well, you know, what's in front of me? What's behind me? What did God serve them? I can't wait to ask that in heaven. I wonder if any of those guys will be there, but I can't wait to ask, what did God serve them? But we see the principle he's laying out from the category again is when you have the right mediator and sin is handled correctly, what is the byproduct? The byproduct is communion with God. You know God and he knows you. This is one of the like most moving portraits since the fall that the Lord brings, you know, 70 plus people onto the mountain. He sits them down and right under the glory cloud of destruction that's there. He's like, here, let's, let's share a meal together. Let me feed you. Let's have a meal. Let's have fellowship. Let's know and be known. This is the same concept. Abide in me and I and you mentioned that already. give you a hint it's a perfect Sunday for this right a table that's foreshadowing it's creating a category in their mind to think that sometimes communion with God looks like eating and drinking with him so much so that in 1500 years or so God is going to be in human form and it's going to sit and eat and drink with them and one of them's going to betray him and it's going to be shocking And then he's going to go to a cross and he's going to die and that sin problem is going to be fully satisfied by the great mediator, the once offering of himself so that communion with God would be permanently and perfectly established. Verses 9 through 11 is one of those great instances in Scripture where Human words just don't capture the beauty and the wonder and the marvel of what's taking place. That God fellowships with man. I did say it, I started with that even with this point. And if you get the mediator part right and you get the sin part right, the byproduct is that communion with God. And for some of us, We don't have that communion with God and we wonder why. Those are certainly not the only reasons. There's plenty of other reasons. But sometimes it's because we've maybe forgotten the sin issue. Maybe we've forgotten to deal with sin or we have that little pocket sin that we're keeping close. And the scriptures are abundantly clear that's not a good thing. I love how just in passing it's dropped. Husbands are to love their wives so that God will answer their prayers. Just in passing it's dropped there. Oh yeah, by the way, how you deal with sin directly impacts your relationship with God. And sometimes those sins hinder it in such a way that it has profound lasting damage. 
It's one of the ones I love, we talk about often, but I love with 1 Corinthians 11, with the Corinthian church, how they're, they're sinning in how they practice the supper. They're, they're sinning in just about every way imaginable, really, if you read the Corinthian letter, the whole thing. It's, it's staggering how a church that's likely not much larger than this one has that much stuff happening all at once. I mean, it really is amazing. But how the, the, it's like they've forgotten that even in, com, in the supper, in their, the way they're trying to commune with God, they've just ignored sin. And God says, well, that's why some of you are sick. And even why I've killed some of you. Because sin matters. In other cases, we see where uh, the mediator issue has become kind of secondary, where they're forgetting about Jesus. And trying to be filled with God directly. And again, that, that doesn't produce communion. The only way you know the Father is through the Son. If you, if you lose that emphasis on the mediator, you lose the communion. You cannot go into God's presence on your own. And I like how there's, at least in the story, it seems to have this great logical progression of just kind of how it flows. God's teaching them about the mediator. He's teaching them about sin. When those two things are handled correctly, you have this great communion with God. You have this great relationship with him. But that's not where the story stops. It's a true story. Verse 12, the Lord says to Moses, come up on the mountain, wait there that I may give you tablets of stone. I have more instructions. We're not done yet, friend. I love that. Christianity is not summarized in conversion. That's not the pinnacle of salvation. It's conversion. The pinnacle of Christianity is not conversion at all. I love it. Mediator's right. Sin is handled. We have this great communion with God. And then the Lord says to Moses, it's time now to get to work. Now it's time to start doing things. And he takes him up onto the mountain for how long? Did you catch that at the very end? 40 days and 40 nights of direct relationship of understanding the truth of God's law being written out so that he can then, as his, the mediator of Israel, come and present it to the people of God. This is where he's getting the content the rest of the book and the content of the book of Deuteronomy, the content of the law given out to him. To think about how much of a brain dump this had to have been. Just information coming from God Almighty. How the sacrificial system works. I mean, think about it. Some of you have been studying the sacrificial system for 40 years and you still don't understand it. And he had 40 days to master it much less the tabernacle, Ark of the Covenant, all of the other things. It's now time for Moses to get to work because it's about living. It's about transformation. It's about obedience in the future. And again, the the pattern is important. Mediator, sin, communion, transformation. And again, the reason why I talk about that is because we in the American church, we like to skip steps or maybe even all the steps. 
It's one of the things in reading all of the preaching resources. How many of the resources about preaching are all about getting to the fourth step? How to transform lives. How to communicate in a way for change. But missing the first three. (laughs) Change follows communion with God. It's not the predecessor. I'll end with this. Many of us maybe have grown weary in our walk with God. Maybe we've grown discouraged in the lack of change that we might see. Maybe we don't feel like we have a place to work or maybe we've been working too hard and we feel weary and discouraged and dried up and tired. And I would just simply suggest this. Be sure that you have all of those steps in order and in balance. The emphasis on Christ, dealing with sin, communing with God, and then obedience and transformation. Otherwise, it produces either what we see Israel turn into, which is a hot mess, namely destruction, or it produces very weary Christians, which might be the case for some of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus who lived, died, and was raised and ascended for us. We thank you that we may have union with Christ. Oh, God, change us, we pray in his name. Amen.